Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Here's the question this morning. What do you worry about? Don't answer because there'd be 40 million different things, but just rhetorically, what is it that you worry about? In seasons of anxiety, when you cannot seem to stop worrying, and you might want to raise your hand and say, Brett, I'm in one of those perpetually. That's just kind of where I live. I'm constantly there's constantly something that's coming up. I, you know, I, it's just, it's hard for me. Some of you would tell me that it has to do with your kids. You would say, Brett, I worry a lot about my kids. Um, just a quick story. I, t- I tell you often about my good friend, Michael, who lives in Mitchell, Indiana. We're very close. Michael has a son who is in medical school. He goes to Ross Medical School on the island of Dominica. And I don't know if you remember the path of Hurricane Irma, but she went right over the island of Dominica. And she was supposed to hit, or did hit, about 9 p.m. Monday morning, or Monday evening of this past week. And so the school had told uh, Jacob that he was to check in with them by 3 p.m. on Tuesday. So, you know, Michael is, is here in the States. Uh, the only way they're ever really able to communicate is through Skype and uh, texting a little bit. <clears throat> I don't think they talk much. They might FaceTime. I'm not sure if they can do that or not. I guess they can. If they can Skype, they could, should be able to FaceTime. But... They, they talk, you know, as frequently as they can, and <clears throat> they were talking to Jacob just before the storm hit Dominica, and Jacob said, I need to go, the, the window is beginning to rattle, and I need to take care of that, so, you know, they said their I love yous, and Jacob hung up, and so that was the last Michael had heard from his son, Jacob, <clears throat> was a little before 9 p.m. on Monday evening, and as I said, he was supposed to check in with the school at 3 p.m. the following Tuesday. 3 p.m. came, no word from Jacob. 24 hours later, Michael has been calling down to talk to the school. The school is telling Michael, we have not heard from Jacob and Lauren. They have not checked in. This is 24 hours after they're supposed to have checked in. Um, I spoke with with, uh, Michael Wednesday afternoon, and um, as you might imagine, he was very upset. He was crying to me on the phone. And um, I hung up the phone with him, honestly not sure whether Jacob and Lauren had been able to navigate the storm and to survive. And uh, so later that night, uh, you know, we started to kind of look on, on Ross's website and, and, and their Facebook page and started to see some glimmers of hope that there were some students that had not yet uh, checked in and that they were, that was still a process. And uh, then... Finally, Michael called me in tears Friday afternoon, and he said, I just talked to Jacob. Um, You can imagine the relief that you feel when you finally talk to your kid who's halfway, not halfway around the world, it's just, it's in the Caribbean, but um, it's far enough away that you would care. I mean, it would be a big deal. And so, certainly, you're going to care about your kids in a situation like that. Some of you would say, you know, it's about money for me, it's about my career. I don't know that my field is going to even exist in three to five years the way the world is changing. I'm, I'm just not sure that I'll even be able to have a job. Some of you, it's, you're a student and you're majoring in something and you're asking yourself the question, is that going to even be there 10 years from now? And what does it look like on the other side of graduation? And am I going to be able to make enough money? And uh, can I move out of the house uh, from underneath my parents? And your parents are saying, please, you know, find a place. To, yeah. um, you know, and you're wondering about all that. And it's a, it's a worry for you. What do you worry about? 
When it's 4 a.m. and you're rolling back and forth in bed and you keep looking over and, and every time you look, another 15 minutes has passed on the clock and you haven't gotten any sleep. And it's not getting any better. And you don't anticipate that you're going to get any sleep before you've got to get up and go to work the following morning. And your mind is racing. What most likely are you worrying about? I want to open with a scripture. And if you've got your Bible this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be there for the the entirety of the message. Uh, This is Jesus speaking. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. That sounds easy, doesn't it? If it's just that easy, why don't we all just do it? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And then comes the question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? As Jesus gets into this teaching, he's going to use the word worry six different times. And as he begins to coach his followers on the topic of anxiety, he picks some pretty basic stuff. He talks about food, he talks about clothes, and he asks the rhetorical question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Well, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I, let's say, you know, I had cereal for breakfast this morning, and, and I'll maybe have some Chinese food for, for lunch this afternoon, and, you know, maybe some soup this evening. I don't know. Uh, I sure hope I'm more than just the meals that I eat. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Man, I hope so. I sure hope that I'm more than a clothes hanger and just something to drape some uh, shirts and and jeans on from time to time. Jesus says you should should not be consumed with anxiety over these things. At this particular time in Jesus' ministry, he has tons of people coming to him, tons of people following him. He's He's kind of riding a wave of popularity. And in our text today, he is in northern Israel. He is up uh, in northern Galilee. Um, Here's a picture taken just north of the Sea of Galilee. Look how hilly that is. And you can just kind of imagine Jesus standing on one of these, these hillsides as he speaks. And he gave a sermon there that's become very famous. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he sat down and he began to teach. And this segment on worry is right in the middle of a, of a pretty long teaching that he does. Actually, it's, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're smack dab in the middle of it. And he's trying to paint a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. And, and he says, my followers will not be consumed by worry and anxiety. And Jesus is talking about worry, and here's the lesson. Worry about tomorrow can steal your joy today. Anxiety about next week or next year can steal your joy today. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's going on in your world right now. There's something about worry that is anti-trust. If I believe that trust and trust that there is a God who really cares about me and that no matter what challenge I face next month or next week or next year, he will meet me in that challenge. If I believe that, there's something about worry and anxiety that is anti-trust um, and it gets to be a part of our state and of our mind and our state of our heart. It can affect that. Worry and anxiety stand in opposition to the kind of life that Jesus has called us to live. He doesn't want us to worry. He doesn't want us to be filled with anxiety. And you say, well, Brett, that's a lot easier said than done. 
Jesus also said that a life of worry and anxiety will derail my spiritual progress. He tells a story about a farmer who goes out into a field. He, he takes a handful of seed and he broadcasts that seed. Jesus said there are four different kinds of soil. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He said there's, there's different kinds of soil that seed's going to land on. Some of it is, is packed soil. Some of it is rocky soil. Some of it is, is weed-infested soil. And some of it's good soil. And that, that soil is going to produce a good crop. And the harvest really depends on what kind of soil the seed landed on. And when Jesus talked about the thorny soil or the soil that was full of weeds... Uh, Here's the descriptor that he uses to talk about that. He said that thorny soil has to do with the cares and worries of this world, which chokes out the harvest, making it unproductive. Jesus says there are going to be some of us who are receptive to God in our lives, who would be doing great spiritually, and then worry and anxiety is going to come in, and it's going to cripple our walk with Jesus. I talk to a lot of people And I listen to a lot of people tell me what their worries are and what their anxieties are, and I can hear that worry and anxiety crippling their walk with Jesus. It's very apparent. It's happened in my world. It happens to me. It happens to all of us. As I said, Jesus used the word worry six times. And for the remainder of our time, I want to give you three reasons why worry just doesn't make sense for the follower of Jesus. Three reasons why the follower of Jesus is, worry is just not a good way for that person to live. Reason one has to do with the word trust. Trust. Jesus is going to ask, do you trust that you have a heavenly father who deeply cares for you? That's a question that you need to answer internally in your mind. Do I really believe that I have a heavenly father who cares about me? Can I trust That whatever challenges I face a week from now, a month from now, God is going to meet me there. Will he supply whatever it is that I need to get me through that challenge? The number one reason that the life of worry just should not make sense to the follower of Jesus is the word trust. It is about being anchored in the fact that you have a heavenly father who genuinely and really cares about you. Jesus is, a, is, in a synagogue, is not in a synagogue as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's out, he's on a hillside, you know, he's, he's in nature, and he says to the crowd, I want you to look at the birds. And the people would have been able to look around and see birds in flight. They would have been able to see birds in bushes, maybe some birds that were nesting. And Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And what Jesus is touching on there are the three steps of the agricultural process of a farmer. Planting, harvesting, and storage. He says, I want you to notice that the birds, they don't plant, they don't harvest, they're, they're, not, they're not putting stuff away in barns. And then he says, and yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. God feeds the birds Love watching hummingbirds come up carefully to, you know, the feeders that we put out for them and hover and I don't know how many beats per second their wings go. It's something like 70 beats per second, something crazy like that. Somebody, what's the answer? 90 beats per second. Yeah, I could do that. I could do that. So you have hummingbirds, robins, you know, in the springtime we look out and see robins on the ground and and, and they're, they're mining the backyard for worms. 
I was driving down the interstate this week. I saw a hawk perched up on a, on a wire, and he was looking straight down. You know, he's very attentive to something going on on the ground. We're told that hawks can see field mice out in the field, and they can swoop down and get those field mice. God provides for the birds, and then we read this. Are you not much more valuable than they? And Jesus does an interesting thing here. He distinguishes humans from the, animal, the rest of the animal kingdom. God made the world and he loves his creation, but God made human life in his image. He cares for the birds. He he loves the birds, but you matter to him more than the birds. Jesus is looking at this crowd and he's talking about the birds and he says, can you trust that your heavenly father will provide for you even more than he provides for these birds who aren't storing their stuff away and they don't plant and harvest And then before he moves on, he drops this little nugget on us. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Let me be clear about something. This passage of Scripture is not about freedom from planning, and it's not about freedom from work. It is about freedom from anxiety. And that's different. It may be that you want to be free from planning and free from work, We've got a plan, and we've got to work. That's just a part of life. But this passage isn't really dealing with that. It's dealing about freedom from anxiety. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? In other words, as a mechanism to get you from here to there, worry doesn't help. Um, earlier this year, I was in my truck. I was pulling the camper back. We'd been camping and I was leaving, just, it was just south of Fort Wayne, and I needed gas, and I thought, well, I don't want to get it here in town. I'm going to go a little bit. And um, so I drove, and what I learned, I'd never, I'd actually <laughs> had this truck for a while, but I'd never seen the gas gauge that low. And what I didn't know is how fast the gas gauge moves when it gets that low, okay? So I'm driving along. And uh, I'm watching the gas gauge, and y- you know you go through that thing where it just feels like you can see it moving, and I'm not seeing any exits, and, I'm not, and when I do see exits, I'm not seeing any gas stations, and I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be great. We're going to be on the side of the road. I'm, Brett's going to do some walking, right? And I started to feel that. Have you ever felt that anxiety that kind of comes up, that thing like, oh, no, here we go, oh no, and, and, and you, you, you're trying to will an exit on the interstate, right, where one doesn't exist, and you're looking at your speedometer, and you're looking at, at the odometer, and you're thinking to yourself, come on, you know, come on, and, but here's the thing, here's what I learned that day, and it's not like I needed that to teach me, we, we all know this, my worrying about my gas gauge did not get me to a gas station any quicker, right? It is not a mechanism to get me from here to there any quicker. It doesn't work. And you can worry all you want. It's not a great mechanism to get you to the place that you want to be. So Jesus talks about food, he talks about birds, and then he turns his attention to clothes. Verse 28, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Back then you would need some sort of spinning wheel to convert wool into something that you, some kind of yarn where you could make something. Verse 29, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now Solomon lived about a thousand years before Jesus. 
He had the reputation of being the wealthiest man in all of Israel's history. And Jesus references him, and he says, not even Solomon, with his best tailor, not even Solomon, with all of his resources and the best materials that were available to him, Solomon, no knock on you, but you do not look as good as the natural beauty of a field full of flowers that the Lord has made. Jesus says, look at the flowers. They have more natural beauty than a dressed-up king with all of his robes. Leading up to the Academy Awards, women will work for months to find the right designer and, and the right dress or the right outfit. And then the night comes where they walk the red carpet and everybody takes their picture and everybody comments on what, you know, what designer are they wearing and did they wear it well, did they not wear it well. And they pose for the pictures. And I think Jesus would say, yeah, you look good, I guess. But you do not match the brilliance of the flowers that my father has made and put in the field. Now the problem with flowers is that they have somewhat of a short shelf life. Um, When I camp, one of the things that I take with me is this little, it's about the size of a bread box. I call it my fire box. And in the firebox is, uh, there's a lighter, there's a fire starter in case my lighter breaks down, there's, um, there's some kindling, there's, uh, I, I collect uh, dryer lint as a way to start fires, and so there's a little bit of that in there. And all that stuff goes with me. I have some split, you know, little pieces of two by four that make uh, great kindling as well. All that stuff goes with me, and it doesn't really take a whole lot for me to build a fire, but back in Jesus' day, you know, they didn't have all that stuff and um, was a little more difficult for them. And one of the things that might happen when it was time to fire up the oven to make uh, the dinner for the evening, the mom might look at the kids and say, hey, go round me up some, some weeds or go find me some dead flowers and bring those uh, to me so that we can build a flower, uh, a fire. So in, in Jesus' day, they, they didn't have all that we have. So they needed to build fire. They would use dead flowers. And so flowers would go from beauty to kindling in just a a really brief period of time. And that's what Jesus is referring to when we read this next verse, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 30, Matthew chapter 6. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And then he adds this little zinger at the end, you of little faith, oh you of, of little trust, See, trust pushes out anxiety, but anxiety can push out trust, and they will compete for the real estate of our hearts. Jesus is giving his disciples anxiety training, and he says, this this is not what I'm about. This is not what Jesus' followers are about. If you want to follow me, if you want uh, to be so much freer than you've ever been before, in relationship to what is going to happen today, tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year, then you've got to understand, uh, it's, I don't want you to live your life with this cloud of anxiety hanging over your head all the time. We, we can't do that. Can you trust that there really is a God who actually cares what happens in your life, whatever situation? Whatever decision you might make, whatever challenge you face out there, You can trust that he will meet you there. Worry doesn't make sense because it is anti-trust. I believe that there is a God who actually cares, that that moves in and forces worry and anxiety 
out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have, 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 have been filled with worry and anxiety, and you, you finally have just kind of handed stuff off to God, and we've had conversations, and you've said, man, when I was able to do that, and God kind of filled that void, I just stopped worrying about it, because I knew there was nothing more I could do, and I just, I had to trust God. Some of you know exactly what that is. So they're on this hillside, <clears throat> there's a big crowd, and some of these people were strangers, but a lot of these people uh, were some of Jesus' closest followers. Peter and Andrew are there, James and John, Thomas, Philip. Some of Jesus' closest disciples were there, and some of those disciples would become major leaders in the early Jesus movement. Toward the end of the New Testament, we have these epistles that are written, uh, you, you find them first and second Peter, and it is believed that they were written by uh, Peter the disciple, the one who had been a fisherman who decided to follow Jesus. And in First and Second Peter, we find him providing guidance to one of the first Jesus communities, one of the very early Jesus communities. And here's what he says. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. These people had a lot of things to be worried about. So when you wake up at 4 a.m. and you're worried about your kids and you're worried about your job or your health, you're worried about a conversation that may or may not happen. You know how you do that? You have this imaginary conversation in your head, and if she says this, then I'm going to say that. And You know, if she comes up with that zinger, I'm going to have this one ready. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have these conversations like, I need to be ready for that. Peter says, you have to do something with that. You, you have to throw it. Throw all your anxiety on him. But here's what the full verse says. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter says he cares for you. He, he really does. You can trust that he cares for you more than he cares for the birds, more than he cares for the flowers. God, I have trust. I believe that you will meet me in any challenge that I experience. Is it possible that that can deflate worry in my life? To which somebody might be tempted to say, oh, Brett, I see. If you have enough faith, then you have faith that trouble won't come. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. Here, listen very carefully. Trouble will come. Okay, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I, you know, you got up and got dressed, came to church this morning, and that's all I got for you. Trouble will come. We all know that. Trouble's coming. Now, I don't know whether that trouble for you is going to be small or whether it's going to be huge. Don't know. But it's going to come. It comes to every life. We're not talking about faith that bad things will not happen. That's not what we're talking about. It is faith that if, and more likely when, bad things happen, God will meet you and walk with you every step of the way and will do whatever you need in those challenges. He will meet you there. Jesus turns the conversation away from anxiety and he turns it toward the second reason, which is ambition. Why does the life of worry not make sense? First of all, because if you trust in a God who cares about you, worry doesn't make sense. Reason number two uh, is ambition. And here's the idea behind this. You have something more important to chase. You got something else to be after. Something else rather than worry. Verse 31. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus says, asking questions like, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? 
He says that is exactly what the pagans do. They're absolutely consumed with it, and it is their life ambition. But you know that your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. You know, it's not like God is uninformed. It's not like God doesn't know you need clothes and doesn't know that you need food. He knows that. So what does Jesus mean when he refers to the pagans? You have to understand that Israel was surrounded by other countries that had been occupied, conquered by the Greeks. So it was full of Greek language, Greek culture, Greek philosophy. Uh, It permeated the whole entire Mediterranean rim. One uh, commentator has called, What will I eat? What will I drink and what will I wear? The holy trinity of Greek thought. It's all they thought about. This is, that's the question they were constantly asking. The Greek culture was all about uh, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, and what I'm going to wear. They knew their food, they knew their clothes, and they certainly knew their wine. They were snappy dressers. And at 100 yards, and see, we're into fashion. You know, we like clothes and we like fashion, especially the ladies. But here's the thing. The, the Greek culture was even more so into that than we are, if you can believe that. At 100 yards, you could see two men, and you could identify by what they were wearing, you could identify them as either a slave owner or a slave himself. You could tell whether you were looking at somebody who owned a grand estate or whether you were looking at somebody who was of meager means. Clothing meant reputation. It meant dignity. It meant status. The Greeks were all about food and wine and clothing. And Jesus said, that is their greatest ambition. That is not to be your greatest ambition. So as I'm saying all this, is it possible that a legalist could could hear some of this and might say, so if someone wonders where they're going to go for, let's say, lunch after church today, uh, where are we going to eat? Brett, are you saying that makes them a pagan? No, let's understand this. Jesus enjoyed food. I think Jesus really enjoyed food. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed, he's at a wedding banquet and he turns water into wine. That's the first miracle Jesus ever performed. In one of Jesus' most famous parables, a a kid comes up to his dad and says, I want half my inheritance. He goes and he burns through his half of the family estate. He ends up broke. He comes back to his dad. His dad sees him off in the distance, rushes up to him, wraps his arms around him and says, hey, get a ring, put it on his finger, put a robe on him, um, you know, put shoes on his feet and kill the fatted calf. Steak tonight, baby. We're eating good tonight. My son has come home. This is exactly how Jesus described the welcome home party, and it's full of food. Jesus is at a banquet, and he's reclining, and the Bible says that a woman came in and, and, and anointed his feet. That happened at a dinner. There's a passage in Revelation 3 where Jesus is speaking, and, he's, and he says, I stand at the door and knock. I'm knocking on the door of your life. Hey, man, is, is anybody home? And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. Jesus used the image of food and meal uh, as that of uh, engaging with the Christ. He used it often. I think Jesus really enjoyed food. He is around food a lot. But there's another guy in the Bible uh, who wasn't. Have you ever heard of John the Baptist? John John the Baptist ate very simply. Uh, fasted a lot of the time, uh, did not drink wine, and then Jesus comes along, and every time you turn around, uh, Jesus is eating with a group of people. He's at someone's dinner. Jesus did drink wine. 
And so Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, you know, it's strange, you don't like either of us. John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, and you say, that guy must be demon-possessed. And then I come along, and and I'm eating, and I'm drinking, and you say that I'm a, a, a glutton and that I'm a drunk. And he says, you basically seem to not want to obey either one of us. Apparently, Jesus ate enough dinners that someone would be uh, inclined to accuse him of being a glutton. It seems that Jesus enjoyed food. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. Jesus' mission was not the meal. Jesus' mission was the people at the meal. Very close to the place where the Sermon on the Mount was given, just north of the Sea of Galilee, there's a city called Capernaum. And the main road that goes by is a major tax center. Uh, Capernaum at one point was fairly, considered a fairly large city. It was a thoroughfare going by it, a lot of traffic, a lot of different languages spoken, a lot of trade. And so anywhere you found something like that, you found Roman taxation. And so... Um, Jesus sees a tax guy there named Matthew, and he says, I want you to be one of my followers. Uh, We're told that Matthew gets up from his tax collector's booth, and he walks away to follow Jesus. But before he leaves town to follow Jesus, he calls in all of his tax collector buddies, and he's going to throw a going-away party for himself. Now, you need to understand that the people that would have been present at at Matthew's um, no longer going to be a tax collector going-away party would have been, basically would have been a who's who of who you should not be hanging out with in the city of Capernaum, okay? These are not people that you would want to be associated with. You wouldn't want to be known as hanging out with them. But the Bible describes it like this in Matthew. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. The religious leaders see this and they ask themselves, what is he doing with them? Good question. And then they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they asked that question of the disciples, but Jesus hears it, and he's going to give the answer. Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, where else would you expect me to be? These people are broken. They have relationships and lives that are deeply busted and broken Their lives are full of broken relationships. Where else would I be? See, you have to understand that the purpose of Jesus being at Matthew's dinner was not the meal. His mission was the people at the meal. Jesus was not there as a diner. He was there as a doctor. He is there as a friend. And and this conversation begins to happen around food. But his mission isn't the meal. It's people. I love that about Jesus. This picture was painted in the 1600s by a Spanish uh, artist named Velazquez. Uh, There's a kind of a window up to the right, and in the foreground you see two women. The one on the right does not look happy, and she is is there uh, working with her mortar and pestle, and she's grinding some spices. You can see some fish and garlic and eggs on the table. And through the window, you can see someone back there teaching and some people sitting, kind of listening to the teacher. This is Velasquez's attempt to depict the scene from the Bible that happened at the home of three siblings, Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus. The Bible says that Martha was trying to provide dinner 
for her guests, and she is working diligently to get things ready. Meanwhile, her sister Mary has uh, retired to the other room, and she has taken her place at the feet of Jesus, and she's sitting there listening to the things that Jesus says. Now, if you're Martha, and you're trying to provide a fantastic meal for the Lord, and Mary isn't helping you, how are you feeling about now? Probably not real good. Probably not real happy. Martha has finally had enough, and in a slight window to how comfortable she felt talking to Jesus, she goes into the next room and she basically says, Jesus, make my sister help me. I'm in here doing this all by myself. Make her help me. And Jesus said, no. Martha, it's not about the meal. It's about the people who are at the meal. What he actually said in Luke chapter 10 is this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset. Those are our words. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. For Jesus, it wasn't about the meal. It was about who was going to be at the meal. That was his mission. Better to have an imperfect meal and a redemptive conversation around that meal than to have a perfect meal and conversation that is meaningless. Jesus enjoyed food, I'm sure, but Jesus' mission and ambition was not food. It was the people that would be eating that food. So if you're 25 and your biggest ambition is to discover the, the latest microbrew that's going to tickle your taste buds, you need a higher ambition than that. If you're 65 and before your feet hit the floor in the morning, you're trying to figure out where you're going to eat dinner that night, your life deserves a higher ambition than that. That that ambition is not worthy of your life. And Jesus is going to call you to something much, much more important and much more interesting than what am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, and what am I going to wear? Jesus said that's what Greek culture runs after, but not you. That's not what my followers chase. Well, Jesus, what do your followers chase? The next verse in our text this morning may be one of the most important verses we could read. I would highly recommend you, you memorize this. It's Matthew six thirty three. There's a little song that goes with this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, you chase after my stuff, I'll take care of your stuff. You chase after my stuff, your stuff is going to be taken care of. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? Do you know what the first words of Jesus' public ministry were? Here's what he said. These are the very first words Jesus said in his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. There was something brand new in the coming of Jesus that was not there before he came. Jesus said, the kingdom is is now here, my presence, in my presence, it has now come. Repent, that word gets used in churches, but we don't often define it. The word repent means to change your mind, to kind of change your way of thinking. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change in behavior. So it makes its way from your mind to your heart to your behavior, it, things change when you repent. Because the kingdom of God has now come. 
To seek first the kingdom of God is to seek the liberating, joyful, demanding rule and reign of Jesus in my life and in the lives of the people with which we live and work. And it will affect the way we manage our marriage. It's going to affect the way we manage our money, our kids, our jobs, our free time, our liberty in Jesus. Let me ask you, are there areas of your life where you've kind of put up a no trespassing sign for God? God, you're allowed in here, but you're not allowed in here. God, I'll give you free reign over this area of my life, but this area of my life is off limits to you. Don't touch it. This series is about completely seeking the liberating and joyful and demanding rule and reign of Jesus in our life. Could that area for you be the area of anxiety and worry? So reason one, I trust that there is a Heavenly Father who actually cares about me. Trust. Reason two is about ambition. I've got bigger things to chase than my next meal or my next wardrobe decision. The third reason and the last one, and we'll we'll just look at this one very briefly. Uh, The last verse we're going to look at has to do with what Jesus said about trouble. And here's what he says. You're going to have trouble. It may be big. It may be little, but we are going to have trouble. And worry will magnify the trouble that you experience. If you're going through something right now, and you're laying awake at 4 a.m., and you're worrying about it, you're magnifying your problem. You're not helping your problem. And you say, Brett, I know that, but I can't, I can't help it. I know that. Trust me, I get it. But it's not helping anything. In fact, it's hurting it. It's magnifying it. He said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is not saying that, that faith in God will relieve you from conflict and will relieve you from trouble. What he's saying is when you give yourself to anxiety, you have double trouble. Because you'll be carrying today's weight, and because of what's racing through your mind and what's racing through your heart, you will add to it tomorrow's weight as well. I, I, I would liken it to this cinder block right here. You've got troubles today. Okay, so this represents today's troubles, and I don't know what those are for you. It may be work. It could be something going on uh, in a relationship that you have. It may be sickness or illness for you or someone in your family. But this represents you and all the stuff that you've got to deal with today. But what happens when we start worrying about, "Ah, but what about the conversation that's going to go with that? What's this going to look like tomorrow? How am I going to deal with this next week? Then what you've really done is you've picked up another cinder block and you have now double trouble. And can you just see how this is going to hinder your life? You're not going to get anything done. And you're no good to anybody when this is what you look like. Your worry and your anxiety. Jesus said, you're going to, each day has enough trouble of its own There's no reason for you to pick up two cinder blocks. Sarah Young wrote a book called Jesus Calling. And in the book, Jesus Calling, she has this to say about troubles. Rehearsing your troubles results in experiencing them many times. Whereas when 
whereas you are meant to go through them only when they actually occur. And then she says this, do not multiply your suffering in this way. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus told his disciples, bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be betrayed. I will meet you there, and I will give you the words to say. I'm going to meet you in that trouble. I'm going to be with you as you go through that. I'll meet you there. A life free of worry is a life that is assured that God is going to be there. That whatever you face, God is going to be there to go through that with you. That you don't go through it alone. Jesus says, I'll meet you there. Go back to sleep. I'll meet you there. Let's pray. Father, this is a big deal for us. This is something that we struggle with a lot. In almost all of my conversations that I have with adults and even high school kids, I hear them worrying. College kids, I hear them worrying. Lord, it just, it, it's such a natural part of our life. We, we, allow, we, just, we, we think that because we can't do anything about it that we just shouldn't mess with it, that it's just natural. But God, you call us not to worry. There's, that means that there's something we can do. That means that there is some way that we can eliminate it. And I confess to you along with these people We hear that, and we don't necessarily know what that is. But, Father, in Philippians, you tell us not to be anxious about anything. But instead of being anxious, we should pray. And then you say that as we pray, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard our heart and our mind. And Lord, that, that's kind of a word picture of a, of a soldier standing at the door of our heart to make sure that worry does not enter there. That's what happens when we give our worries and our anxieties to you, when we pray to you and we offer them up. We cast our cares on you. So Father, this morning, all kinds of worry walked in this room. We've all got it. And I pray, Father, that in these brief few moments as we sing, we are able to offer them back to you to cast our cares on you, to trust you to be our heavenly Father, to take you at your word when you say, I will be there. I'll meet you there. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Father, we worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.